Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Hey pals, welcome back to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. I'm so excited that you guys are back and here to learn with me again today. Today's Water Woman is one of my friends, Mary Clinton, and she is absolutely amazing. If you had told me at the beginning of this episode that I would be as excited about marine sediment communities as I was during this episode, I would have told you you were absolutely nuts. But Mary does such a good job explaining what marine sediment communities are and why we need to care about them, because guess what? We do. I just know you guys are going to love Mary as much as I do. So let's just jump right in and learn all about her work. Welcome on to the Water Woman podcast. I love having my friends on the podcast, so it's super exciting (laughs) to have you on today. I'd love for you to introduce yourself with your name and your pronouns and tell people a little bit about yourself. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, My name is Mary Clinton, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I am a graduate student doing my master's in marine biology at Memorial University of Newfoundland, which is a pretty beautiful space to study, I have to say. Definitely not a hard place to live and study. I don't want to say that, actually, because you guys did have snowmageddon, so, (laughs) you know, but definitely a beautiful place. It is. It is. The winter was a bit of a shock, I have to say, coming from the West Coast. It, uh, I was told to expect a real winter, but Snowmageddon was quite the introduction. So so was that your first uh, East Coast winter? That was it. The first, very first winter. And I think it was the worst snowstorm in, I don't know, many years, possibly decades. I was actually dog sitting for someone at the time and had to dig out. The snow was literally past their gutters. Like it was at roof level. It was insane. So made for some good time lapses, but I feel like I've weathered the storm and I'm ready for for these East Coast winters now. (laughs) I love it. You know, after that one, like all the rest of them are going to seem pretty easy and pretty chill, like no big deal. Oh, exactly. This last year, you know, we get a foot or two and I was like, ah, it's nothing. And Beautiful. Don't even recognize myself. <laughs> <laughs> so backtracking past that, what makes you a water woman? Like, when did you fall in love with the ocean? What was it that made you want to be like, yeah, this is this is the path for me? Um, well, I grew up, I mentioned I grew up in BC. I'm from uh, Vancouver area. And so I always lived right on the water. And a lot of my childhood was spent, I don't even know what kids do at the beach. You know, we'd dig out little sandcastles. We'd make crab hotels with the shore crabs. Um, It was, you know, a really fundamental part of my childhood and my upbringing. And I think I had that sort of grade two, grade three dream of I'm going to be a marine biologist when I grow (laughs) up. But that, I mean, I moved on from that. There were other careers I thought about. I mean, I wanted to be a crossing guard really desperately for a while there. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you go through the astronaut phase. And when I started my undergrad, I actually thought I wanted to go into physiotherapy. And I did uh, sort of a work term in a physio clinic. And I really enjoyed that, like working with people and bodies and the biology aspect. But what got me was being inside all day. And I just, I felt so restless and I really felt drawn to the ocean. And 
I got kind of lucky and almost by accident signed up for a semester doing a field course in Bamfield in BC, which is, it's on the west coast of Vancouver Island. It's a pretty uh, small community and there's a research station out there. And that I think really helped me, I guess, come back to that passion and um, my love for the ocean and sparked yeah, renewed interest this time as, you know, an adult rather than a eight-year-old uh, in pursuing marine research. Well, I'm really sorry that your crossing guard dream did not come to, come to play, <laughs> but I'm glad it didn't. I'm glad you ended up here where you are. <laughs> it's never too late. True, true. This could be like a plan B. Like, you never know. A side gig, you know? Don't quit your day job, but... I mean, biology does pay enough that you might need one. Uh, that's the truth. <laughs> so after you kind of were like, okay, this is what I want to do, you decided to go on and pursue a master's. What is the master's that you're doing? And like, what drew you to it? Like, what was... Because it's a very interesting topic that like... what I feel like it's one of those like marine bio topics that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. Like, usually it's the charismatic animals and the big megafauna but like tell us what drew you to what you're doing definitely yeah I think uh, when I tell friends and family that I'm a marine biologist I'm doing my master's in marine biology like you said they're immediately thinking of whales and dolphins like sea turtles um, really large charismatic animals and I kind of have to let them down gently and tell them <laughs> that basically what I'm doing for my graduate research is just playing in the mud because um, <laughs> what I do is I study I'm looking at uh, marine sediment communities so I'm interested in the little tiny creepy crawly critters that are living in the ocean mud on the seafloor and I think a lot of the reason we don't hear about this as much or it maybe doesn't catch the attention of social media or the mainstream media is just a classic case of out of sight out of mind right you I had a general idea that you know everything in the ocean is habitat of course there will be organisms living in in mud or in sand but until starting this project I really had no idea just how much is is actually in there and how important it is. So it's been really eye-opening for me. That is super cool. I do agree with the like out of sight, out of mind. I feel like they don't really become the star of the show because like you think like, oh, sediment, like worms and stuff. We have that out of the ocean. That's fine. I don't care. Like it doesn't, they don't have, unless you are taking the time to like learn about it, they don't have the draw that like these cool little, like even like tiny little like um, tenophores and like little things like that have like none of the like oh that's so cool and so interesting I've never seen anything like it until you really start digging in about them right then you're like wait a second this is so cool <laughs> definitely I think you know I, I sort of think of it as these large creatures like the whales are like the leading lady but these sediment communities and uh all the little organisms that live in the mud uh, are kind of more like the crew, you know, they're the backstage crew, you absolutely need them there, everything would fall apart without them, but they're not exactly in the spotlight, and they're not drawing attention to themselves. I love that, they really are like the the foundation of everything, like without them, everything else will kind of just like crumble down. Definitely, the cascading effects um, are, yeah, they, they would definitely, uh, you'd feel their absence, but as long as they're there and doing their job, 
uh, a lot of the time it's not something people are necessarily thinking about. It's so weird to me that like our entire existence hangs in the balance of like these little tiny microscopic animals. Like what? It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing to just, you know, think about the, I feel like the more I learn about biology and ecology and the natural world, the more mind blown I am. It's just everything is so intricately linked and we're really just scratching the surface. We're doing our best here, but it's so far beyond what humans understand. It's really amazing. Like we have this like sliver of like, okay, this is what you know. Another like slightly larger sliver of like, this is what you know you don't know. And then just like the entire graph is like shit you don't even know you don't know. Like (laughs) just the untouched stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like that. I feel like the more you learn, the smaller the sliver becomes <laughs> of yeah, what we know. Yeah. Literally, I have said this so many times, like the more I learn, the more I realize I know absolutely nothing. Like, and I think really that holds terrifying. That holds forever, right? The more, absolutely. the more degrees you do, the more experiences you have, the more people you talk to, uh, the more you realize uh, just how little it is that we know, but that, you know, in an exciting way, not to be discouraged. I think that's really inspiring and kind of what drives a lot of scientists. Absolutely. Absolutely. That like potential that you could discover something that nobody else knows is just like always there. And like, and sometimes it can feel like, like you're like, oh, I'm never going to find a new species. Like that's, I want to name a species after myself or someone. You're like, oh, no <laughs> chance. And then like this new species of whale pops up and you're like, wait, could have been me. Like, who knows? <laughs> You never know. That's pretty much the bottom line is you never know. (laughs) You never know. Now we've talked about these marine sediment communities. What, what are marine sediment communities and like what specific ones are you looking at? Um, So what I'm looking at for my research right now are near shore intertidal sediment communities, which is basically just to say that I can access them by walking into the ocean wearing waterproof pants. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's not high tech at all. Um, Basically, I go out, I have chest waders, so I'm somewhat waterproof up to my uh, torso as long as I don't bend over too much. And I walk out into uh, the ocean in a muddy or sandy area, and I'm collecting sediment cores, which is a really cool way to sample because if you were to just sort of, I guess, take a bucket and scoop some sediment, you get an idea of what's living there if you look through that mud, but you lose the composition of the community. Where where are these organisms living? How are they um, situated relative to each other. And so the core basically is just a plastic tube. It's open on both ends and it lets me take a sample completely intact. So I get sediment on the bottom, seawater on top. And I almost, it's almost like this tiny piece of the ocean that I can then take back to the lab and run my experiments on. And I know exactly, um, who's in what layer of sediment and then I can infer, you know, what they might be doing there. That is so cool that you can like take a piece of the ocean with you, like in seawater and all, like intact. So cool. It's really amazing. And I, I think one of the beauties of working in the intertidal is that you can do that kind of thing. And it's 
pretty straightforward. If I take a core and it doesn't work, I'll just take another one. Yeah. Uh, but when you're working on ships doing this type of research, you need, first of all, really expensive gear. You put down this sort of robot to take the cores from you for you and you bring it back up and maybe it hit a rock and you have nothing and you have to send it back down again. And oh so it's a lot more challenging. And I, I love working in the intertidal. I love just being literally immersed in my study environment. Um, I find it really rewarding. And I find that then the science becomes a little more intuitive as well, because you're really there with your hands in the dirt doing it yourself. I think the hands-on experiments or like the hands-on experience is really what changes it for a lot of people. Like you could be like, yeah, I'm kind of interested in this. And then getting to actually go out there and like get your hands on something, you're like, this is the coolest thing. I'm having so much fun. I, yeah, it's, it's one of those things you really have to pinch yourself. Like, is this really what I do for my work? I just get to go out to these beautiful places and literally play in the mud. This is the childhood dream come true. So I I feel pretty lucky. So you mentioned playing in the mud. Aside from playing in the mud, what does a day in your life look like when you're collecting samples and doing the experiments on the samples? So like, you go, you get one of these little capsules of it. What's next? What experiments are you doing? So uh, what I'll do is collect usually quite a few, maybe a dozen, a couple dozen cores from a site, and I'll take them back to my lab. I say this with air quotes uh, because <laughs> I'm often working pretty far away from the actual lab space at the university. So um, for this project, I worked in Terra Nova National Park and in Gross Morne National Park, which are both gorgeous areas uh, on the island of Newfoundland, um, there isn't always a lab available. So when I was working in Terra Nova, for example, my lab space uh, was set up in an Airbnb. It was uh, <laughs> pretty unconventional. It was really fun. Um, I sort of rented out this cabin with two rooms. One of the rooms was completely full of my equipment. And... I think this is one of those times when what you read in the scientific manuscript is just so different from the reality of the research. I think, you know, in the manuscript, we'll say that the cores were incubated in a temperature controlled setting. Well, that means that I was in this Airbnb and I kept them in a beer fridge. And that's (laughs) what it is. (laughs) That's how you do ecology. And I love that. I love how improvisational it often is big time Um, you know I had this whole plan for the couple weeks we were out there you have to buy all the food ahead of time and then I needed the freezer for my samples so we had to eat all of the burritos in the same night to make room for the samples and that's how it goes and it's so much fun so I think a day in the life um it really depends and anything could happen but often we're getting up really early Uh, driving these great big university trucks just full of cores and totes and life jackets and boots. And, you know, you get to go out, spend time in the water, take them back to this Airbnb. Um, I'll set up the cores, honestly, in a mini fridge. Um, And then what's kind of cool is I have these specially designed, like, airtight lids that completely seal the core. And there's little ports in those lids so I can measure, um, 
I can take water samples throughout my experiment, see what nutrients are in the water. There's also a tiny little pink dot and it gets glued on the inside of the core and I can basically shine a laser at the dot and it tells me how much oxygen is in the water. It's like black magic. I don't under, I don't know how this works. It's incredible. The dots are fairly pricey, um, <laughs> but so worth it. So I'll just, you know, I basically wake up every four hours um, overnight and then into the next day, I'll measure oxygen. I take water samples. And what I'm trying to do is figure out how the organisms living in that mud affect nutrient cycling in the ocean. So are they taking up nutrients? Are they um, taking them in? And the oxygen tells me sort of how hard they're working to do that, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I love the day in the life question is always one of my favorites because (laughs) there's so many different answers and it really just like highlights that there's absolutely like no right way to do science. Like it's definitely not. Yeah. It's, I feel like science is a very personal process in a lot of ways and what people love about their project tends to tell you a lot about who they are as people. I think, you know, my, my partner loves data analysis, you know, he'd be so happy if you just skipped all the experiment part and just give him the data he wants to look. I love the field work part. And so it's cool to see what people are drawn to and the variety of work that you could do even within one field. Absolutely. Oh, so much so. Cause like, it's just such a broad field. You can literally do anything. anything. (laughs) I am in the mood to clean. Now, I've always been one to just go buy my cleaning supplies at the store, grabbing like when I grab groceries or something, and I tend to grab whatever is the cheapest that will do the job. But it's always weighed heavily on my mind, like, man, this is so much single-use plastic. Come on, like, do better. But there's never any great alternatives. So when I was scrolling on TikTok one day and I saw Isavibe shop, I was so excited. With Isavibe, you get to save on plastic and money. These cleaning products are plastic-free, affordable, and so easy to use. They come in these little tablets that you drop into some water. I used an old Windox bottle that I was going to throw out, but it got a second chance at life. You drop it in, you shake it up, and let it dissolve a little bit, and boom, cleaning product. You can get a glass cleaner, a foaming hand soap, a bathroom cleaner, and an all-purpose cleaner. A pack of three of one of these costs $9, and the starter kit that contains all four cleaners is available for just $12. And as if that already isn't amazing, Water Women listeners get to save 20% on their purchases when they use the code WATERWOMEN. You can check out Isavibe at Isavibe Shop, that's I-S-A-V-I-B-E shop.com, and don't forget to use code WATERWOMEN when you purchase some products for 20% off. rundown on ocean nutrient cycling like what what is it how does it work why is it important for you to look at that good question uh so not a big question at all it's really really (laughs) simple question something small you know (laughs) no no big deal uh I guess the simplest way 
to think of nutrient cycling is that it's kind of like the recycling system of the ocean. So it's the process where nutrients or elements like carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, things that most, if not all organisms need, are moved around through the ecosystem. And often how that happens is through uh, organism eating something else. Um, when organisms die and their bodies decompose, that releases nutrients. And there are a whole bunch of different processes that control how those nutrients move through the system. And what's important is that you can't really have life without those fundamental building blocks, without those nutrients. And so what I'm looking at are the organisms in the sediment. A lot of them are worms, um, tiny clams or snails, uh, teeny tiny little crustaceans. I've seen some, you know, larval crabs, things like that, little shrimp. Cute. And what I'm looking at is how they take food, food being a loose term, how they take food falling from the sky into the sediment. Um, often that food is poop, it's decaying matter, it's algae. And as they eat it and process it, they're releasing nutrients back into the ocean to fuel primary productivity and to fuel food chains. And so it's really important because if they weren't there doing that job of recycling nutrients and making them available again, we wouldn't have algae. And without algae, you wouldn't have little copepods eating the algae and you wouldn't have small fish and larger fish. And eventually, you know, this process supports fisheries, which support coastal people all over the world. So it's really fundamental and it's almost invisible. It's very difficult to even think about this happening, but it is, and it's supporting all life in the ocean. Absolutely. So that goes back to that almost like the the backstage crew of how how important they are. And without them, we don't really know how it would affect us. And I kind of don't want to find out actually. I would really, <laughs> I would really like to keep that a secret. Absolutely. Um, and I think the the big question for me, at least in my research, is well what's happening to that process? These little organisms, these tiny worms and what have you are living in the sediment and as food falls down, they recycle the nutrients. But, you know, the ocean is changing, the climate is changing, the composition of the food that's reaching the seafloor is changing. And so what I'm interested in asking is, well, what does that look like? What happens as this food source changes? It Does the recycling change? Is it as effective? Is it more effective? How efficient are these communities at turning over new types of food they may not have seen before or um, they may not have seen in these proportions? So that's really where I'm trying to steer my research um, is kind of looking at it through the lens of how will this process change or will it change in a changing ocean? Yeah, okay, cool. So you mentioned about climate change and how that's affecting it. So like, how would climate change affect these little little creatures? Well, stay tuned. Um, <laughs> it's in the works, but the big question that I'm looking at is um, Newfoundland is pretty cold. Um, it's not, I think it's technically considered a subarctic environment. 
but originally this research was going to be conducted in Labrador. Um, and in Labrador, often the ocean is covered in sea ice. So this is a seasonal process. The freeze up occurs as winter starts and then a lot of ocean ecosystems are covered in that sea ice for a large period of the year. And what's really cool about sea ice is that as spring starts to come back, the days get a little longer, it's a little warmer, the ice starts to thin, you actually get these huge blooms of ice algae living on the underside of that sea ice. And then as the ice breaks up, all this ice algae starts to fall to the bottom and provides really this huge pulse of food after a fairly food limited winter for the seafloor. So that's a really important process and something that provides a lot of nutrients to the seafloor community. Of course, as we all know, you know, there's those photos of polar bears out on a little ice floe. Sea ice is becoming um, less common. You know, it's freeze up is occurring later, thaw is happening earlier. And as sea ice declines, we're going to see a shift in the food that's available for those seafloor communities. It's likely that ice algae will play less of a role and that it will be replaced in all likelihood by phytoplankton. So also phytoplankton are also algae. They're small photosynthetic organisms, but they live and dominate in open water. And so as we shift from this sort of half sea ice, half open water to an ecosystem that maybe eventually will be completely open water all year round, that's going to really change what sort of food and nutrients and the quality of nutrients that are available for the seafloor. It's going to be interesting to see how that kind of plays out and how the lack of sea ice and like all the open water changes from using like the ice algae to the phytoplankton and how that that's so interesting. Yeah, it's something that I'm really, really interested in. And I was, of course, hoping to conduct this work in Labrador itself, uh, where this sea ice change is happening, uh, unfortunately, due to COVID. I'm sure everyone's saying that due to COVID, my research plans have changed. So I carried out my experiments here on the island of Newfoundland. But a lot of the species do overlap. We have some Arctic fauna here as well. And I've been able to ask sort of the same fundamental questions. So I take those sediment cores and during my experiments, we'll pulse them with different quantities of food and different types of food. So some groups get that phytoplankton that's common in open water. Some groups get ice algae, which was actually collected uh, in Maine in Northern Labrador. Some get no enrichment at all. And now I can look at not only the effects of the community on nutrient flux and nutrient cycling, but also the effects of that food source itself on mediating the relationship between the organisms and their function in the environment. That is so cool. I love that. I love science. I love that you can take something <laughs> like that that's you can, and you can like isolate it to figure it out. That just blows my mind that you're doing that within these like core samples and it's leading to such big questions like so cool yeah I think I mean we'll see where it leads I'm sort of midway through the project so I've done all the experiments and now I'm at that part where I spend most of my days in the lab sifting through that mud and literally picking out every single organism and identifying it trying to figure out who the players are what they're doing how many are there 
so it'll be really interesting to see the data that comes out of this and Absolutely. have a feeling it may raise more questions, uh, which is always the way. Classic. All the best questions bring out more questions. Absolutely. Goes back That's to the, the like, you don't even know what you don't know kind of thing. And as you learn more, <laughs> well, we're making all these connections here today. I love it. Look at us go. We're on fire. <laughs> So have you noticed in like your different core samples that certain areas have more diversity or um, more like larger amounts of certain species kind of thing? Have you noticed that within certain areas? And is there kind of like a tie between what areas have a higher number of a specific species? Yeah, definitely. I So I have three study sites for this particular study and one of them is in Terra Nova, which is on the east coast of Newfoundland, and two of them are on the west coast in Bombay. And I, so far, have sorted all of those organisms to phylum, which is a pretty broad classification. I'm now going back through and IDing everything to species. But just from a preliminary uh, standpoint, I've definitely noticed there's much more abundance in the Bombay sites compared to cool. Terra Nova, uh, sort of, I'd say like an order of magnitude more. And what's really interesting to me is the sediment types across the sites are very similar. The grain size is similar. Um, they're all collected at a similar depth. But in Terra Nova, I'm seeing a lot more polychaetes, which are marine worms. So it's kind of a worm dominated community compared to in Bombay. It's largely mollusk dominated. So I have a lot more snails and bivalves, uh, sort of tiny little clams living in that sediment. Like sometimes in two centimeters of sediment, I'll have four or 500 mollusks. So it's really amazing. Yeah, it changes your perspective for sure. Now I feel like if I walk out into the ocean, I'm just thinking about who I'm stepping on. <laughs> but oh, it's a, it's yeah, it's amazing. So the, the abundance and the composition of the communities are quite different. And I'm expecting to see that that will have an effect on maybe which nutrients are being recycled most efficiently or how much. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> That's so interesting that like in two areas, like given they are on opposite sides, you said, they're pretty far away from each other. They're so different, mm -hmm. but in the grand scheme of things, like that's like, if you're looking at the whole globe, like that's not a huge difference between one another and for it to change that much. is so cool. Yeah. It's really been interesting. And I'm, I wonder how much of that is due to the surroundings. The Bombay sites are just sort of off the Gulf of St. Lawrence uh, compared to the Terra Nova a site which is within Newman Sound, it's just sort of off. I mean, I guess it would have a lot more influence from the Labrador Current coming down the east coast of the island. So it's possible that the species that showed up in those locations have sort of stayed and there hasn't been a lot of overlap, especially in Bombay. I think it was before the Ice Age. Um, the Arctic species were present in the area. And then as the ice receded, they kind of got left behind in Bombay itself. So there's this little pocket of Arctic fauna that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not a geologist, but <laughs> probably depending on these larger formations and the currents and um, 
sort of the abiotic or the environmental factors could be accounting for some of the differences, but it'll be interesting to see just how different um, they really are. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Now, looking way ahead, if you, you think, you think after you finish your master's in this area, do you want to go on and do a PhD with this? Or do you want to kind of go a different direction? What's your plan? The golden question. It's what all the relatives want to know every Christmas. What's next? <laughs> when are you finishing your degree? What's next? If I had a dollar for every time I've heard that oh. what's next question, I wouldn't even need to worry about tuition. I could pay it myself easily. Honestly. <laughs> Everyone and their dog wants to know, but uh, I mean that, yeah, it's, that's something that I'm working through still. And I definitely love this research, but I think I do want to go on for sure to do a PhD and I would really like to come up with a way to combine the natural science, the marine science with a little more um, of the science communication or education side of things. That's something that I've always been really passionate about. I love teaching. I love sharing science with pretty much anyone. Um, but I've done a lot of work with school groups and with the general public. And I feel like there is a disconnect between, you know, this, the, the ivory tower, as we refer to it, you know, the, the academia is very isolated from what I would loosely considered to be the real world. Um, And I think it's awesome that there are people out there that are starting to fill that gap and be science communicators and try to kind of run back and forth between the scientists and policymakers or the scientists and the public. But I also think that there's a real need for scientists themselves to take on that role and be the communicator. No one knows your research better than you do. Absolutely. that's something that I feel very passionately about is it's awesome to do this research and there is so much intrinsic value in doing science, but you lose so much value if that science never leaves your lab or never leaves academia or you publish a paper and that's it. Like, I think we really need to be sharing this more broadly. And I think that's why it's awesome that you're doing something like this podcast. It's, amazing and something that totally wouldn't have happened even a decade ago. So we are moving that way. But for my PhD, I would really love to combine both natural science and education or communication or social science in some way to kind of try to start bridging that gap in my own career. Absolutely. I feel like there is definitely a shift happening kind of right now. And it's less scientists who are focused on like jargon and like sounding smarter than they actually are and being like, these like titles that you like read them you're like cool I know like one of those words and (laughs) yeah exactly and more of a like speaking in layman's terms like obviously in scientific articles there's always going to be a certain level of jargon that you need to understand but for the most part it's transitioning into this like accessible to the public easily digestible easily understood type of science which is such a refreshing shift to see because it makes it like, you know, that's going to inspire more people to go into science. It's going to make it less intimidating. And it's going to open up a lot of very important conversations about what we need to be doing to help save the earth. Absolutely. And that's, you know, it comes back to conservation. Today's World Oceans Day. And so much of, or so many of the hurdles we face in 
trying to implement ocean conservation strategies could really be mitigated by a greater understanding of what we're up against. And yeah, you know, you mentioned the tendency to use jargon or these big fancy words and try to make it seem really complicated. But at the end of the day, I think, it, what is it, an Einstein quote? It was like, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. I think that's yes. so true. Yeah. And it really, it really bothers me when people say, oh, well, if you're talking to the public about your science, you know, you need to dumb it down. That's not at all what this no. is. There's absolutely nothing to do with intelligence or um, like the length of the words you're using. It's about really distilling your science into the fundamentals, into the take-home messages. And that's an exercise that I think is often overlooked or undervalued in science is really getting to the nitty gritty of, okay, what does this mean? And how can we take this information and make the world a better place? Absolutely. And it's not like, there's nothing wrong with using these large words, but don't just be like, big word, continue on. Big would be like, big word, explanation of what that means and how it fits. There's nothing wrong with using jargon as long as you're explaining the jargon and giving people an understanding of why you're saying that and what it means. Absolutely. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Now, if you, if there was a little girl listening right now who wanted to be just like you when she grew up and wanted to study this or go into this field, what would be your advice, whether it be like, take these classes or do this, get ahead? What would be your main piece of advice? Um, I think my main advice would be to really listen to that little voice inside of you that says, I love this thing and follow it because that's ultimately what you need. You know, I think anyone can learn the skills. Anyone can learn to code or to drive a big truck or to go out into the ocean or to scuba dive, whatever it might be. But what will really set you apart and what will fuel your creativity and your science and your ingenuity is your passion for the subject. So I think my advice would be, if you like something, keep doing it and see where it takes you. Yes, that is, I love that piece of advice. And I think it's probably one of the most important because it's just very like, if you're doing something every day that is just kind of like, okay, this is, this is cool. It's fine. You're not going to have a fun time doing it. But if you're excited every day to be like, I get to go outside. Or even if you're like, I get to sit at my computer and look at numbers. Like if you're a numbers person and that makes you happy, like pursue that, do whatever you're passionate about. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat it. You know, grad school's hard. It is. And there will be days, even if this is your absolute like passion project, this is the purpose of your life. You love it. You're still going to have days when it's just hard or the code doesn't run. Or, you know, last week I dumped a glass of water into my laptop and that day sucked. But at the end of the day, you're here for a reason. And those little hiccups and the larger ones and the roadblock, those are all teaching you something too. And as long as you're here for the right reasons, it really will be worth it in the end. And big time, you know, no job is perfect, but I feel pretty lucky to get to go outside. I see the ocean every day. And at the end of the day, you know, you can't complain too much about something like that pretty fantastic. 
Now, if anyone listening wanted to follow along with you on any social medias, is there anywhere that they can find you and keep up with you? Absolutely. I am pretty active on Twitter, so feel free to follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Marine Clinton, Marine like the ocean and Clinton like my last name. Uh, So that's probably the best spot to find me. Yeah. Perfect. Make sure you guys are going and following and interacting with Mary on Twitter. And Mary, thank you so much for joining me today. It was so fun to get to chat with you about all this cool stuff. I've learned so much. Thanks for having me, Jill. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you, and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.